Okay, so Austin, sometimes when you win, you lose. And when you lose, you actually win. And then sometimes when you win, you actually tie. And then sometimes when you when you tie, you actually fuck. I'm getting all mixed up. It's just it's just some philosophizing going on, and that's what we're gonna talk about, including the all important question: Can white men jump? That's right. We're talking about the author of sports, Ron Shelton's film, White Men Can't Jump. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Kier Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who wants to say, Austin, I too know what it's like to be thirsty. I too have had a dry mouth. I want to connect with you through sharing and understanding and the concept of dry mouthedness. And I'm Austin Hayden Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., etc., etc. And Kier, here you go. Here's some water. God, that's not the point, Austin. It's not <laughs> the damn point. What? I'm, I gotta get the fuck out of here, you fucking crazy fucking oh it is hard work being this good oh oh it hurts oh it hurts baby give it up turn it loose it's not about black i don't mean to brag but i'm the greatest that's because you never saw me it's not about white honey i'm home how much money did you make today i missed you too i'm sorry honey it's about green I want to find out how good you are, chump. I'm your white shadow. I have a business proposal for you, as if you don't mind hustling. What kind of hustle? $500, baby, and you can pick my teammate. Give him the chump. You mean play basketball? Hey, pretty man, I got something for you. Shut your anorexic, malnutrition, tapeworm habit, overdose, Dick Gregory, Bahamian diet drinking ass up. Give me my money. I'll see you hustle. Hey, I never use those goofy white mother. Hey, who you calling a goofy white mother? You, you. Five hundred divided by two. How much do you love me? I love you, Infinity. Oh, Billy, you're so stupid. You should have said I love you, Infinity plus Infinity. We shoot you, Billy. But first, we want the money. There are rules to hustling. There's an ethics involved. Yeah, that you wouldn't know a damn thing about. <laughs> Will you explain to this Gladys Knight and the pips? It's pips! The pips! Winning and losing is all one big organic lobby. I hate it when you talk like that. Okay, so we start off on the outdoor basketball courts of Venice Beach. Sydney, a trash-talking street baller played by Wesley Snipes, is playing three-on-three for money with uh, all black players. When one of the players from the other team has to leave the game because of an injury, Sydney, as a joke saddles the other team with a goofy-looking white guy from the crowd named Billy Hoyle, played by Woody Harrelson. But to everyone's surprise, this white boy can play. Too late, Sidney realizes this is a hustle, and Billy Hoyle is a former college basketball player who goes from court to court hustling money from opponents who, miss, who underestimate his skill because he's white. However, Billy has his own problems. He's bad with money and in debt to some gangsters. He and his girlfriend Gloria, played by Rosie Perez, go from motel to motel trying to dodge the debt collectors. Meanwhile, she's studying for the moment she can finally get her dream and be a contestant on Jeopardy. Sydney tracks down Billy and suggests they team up to hustle around the courts in L.A. The two go from bonding over basketball to squabbling over all manner 
of things largely revolving around race. The two have various falling outs as Sidney gets his own back by hustling Billy, but then they have to come together again to play on a two-on-two tournament um, because they both need the money. Sidney is himself trying to put money together to get his family out of Crenshaw and into a nicer house. They win the tournament with Billy spending the entire time loudly trash-talking everyone, embarrassing Sydney. On the drive home, Billy's temper flares when he can't get over Sydney, implying he can't dunk. He bets Sydney all his winnings, saying he can prove he can dunk. This causes Sydney to utter the immortal line, White men can't jump. And he's right. Billy beefs it, loses all his money to Sydney, and Gloria is fed up and leaves Billy. Um, desperate to win her back, Billy, with Sydney's streetball connections, manages to get Gloria onto Jeopardy, where all her studying pays off. The two agree that Billy's hustling days are done, and Gloria gives him 2,000 of her winnings to go buy clothes for a job interview. However, Sydney tracks Billy down to ask him a favor because his house got robbed, and he needs Billy's help to win a streetball game against some big opponents. Gloria gives Billy an ultimatum, saying if he gambles her money, she will leave him for good. Billy doesn't believe her and goes and plays anyway. They win the money. Billy returns to find Gloria is gone for good this time. He has the money now to pay off his debt. And the film ends where it began with Billy and Sydney on the Venice courts playing basketball together. So, Austin, what do you think of the movie? It's a great film. It really is. And I forgot. I forgot how good of a film it was because I haven't seen it in... Again, over a decade, as I've said many times on this podcast with some of the films that we've watched. And a lot of times I have a little bit of a, a trepidation when I revisit one of these films because I, I have a memory of it. But my memory is really, I, I find out oftentimes, very superficial. And it could just be because I've grown up and I, I view films now quite differently and I'm more perceptive to you know issues of like story con construction and character construction and character arc and development and then also thematic thing themes that I'm interested in like the racial theme uh men being friends sexual relationships all of that stuff uh you know that I'm that I'm more perceptive to and um, I so I think it's interesting to revisit it at this moment in time where you feel like there's uh a a sort of renewed kind of tension um of kind of uh racial lines culturally um, and so sexual lines because he yeah. does i mean i can imagine a feminist reading of this film being very upset and kind of saying once again men are going to be men and they fuck the women and their lives over right um although wesley snipes seems to be a good partner you know because he's well, the I, one... I think that's the interesting thing about it i think there's that this idea of let snipes says several times of you have to listen to the woman mm. um that's kind of i mean and, and then when when billy um you know after gloria leaves him after, when they've they've played the, the sort of the big game at the end um as snipes goes you know i said listen to the woman and you know i didn't force you to go play yeah i mean i think that i think the fact that the film is very willing to say that there's consequences for fucking over the people in your life and for not listening to your partner i actually think is quite progressive of the film i think if you I, I i think there is very much a version of this film where he wins the big game and mm. then wins gloria back because they pay off the debt but it's like no she sent him an ultimatum he betrayed that ultimatum and ultimately as a result she leaves him for good and i think that's actually to the film's credit in a lot of ways yeah i i'm i'm really glad it didn't take that convenient way out that was the funny thing when I was when I was when I was doing my when I was doing my roundup 
of this. I was like, how do I explain the ending without it sounding like <laughs> the most depressing thing in the world? It's it's like it was like it was really hard to actually explain how the film ends because if you think about it, the film actually ends on a kind of really weird downbeat note. Narr- in terms of the narrative, it ends on a downbeat note, but in terms of the tone, it kind of ends on an upbeat note. And so there's this really yeah, there's this really strange paradox at the end of the film where you know he's got a new buddy and he's got a life and maybe finally he's going to learn to get his shit together but the only way that happens is through the absolute collapse of his relationship which you're rooting for you're rooting for him to get his shit together so that he can be with this woman who has you know she's got her own issues too and she seems to be a bit selfish in some ways but nevertheless they're there for each other and they've been through a lot of stuff and so you're rooting for them and you don't get that at the end. You know, what you get is you get his relationship with Sydney. I think in many ways this is this is this is a, a bromantic comedy rather than a, a sort of romantic comedy. It's a it's a film that's really a, a love story between two guys. Um, and I think, you know, you have Rosie, per- the Rosie Perez story, but, you know, which I actually think is is fairly well realized, but. Ultimately, the relationship we really care about is 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 Woody and Wesley, and that's and I can get that because it was one of the things you know. I've obviously both of us have been paying a lot of attention to the NBA playoffs and um and what was it? I was watching the highlights today of the most recent Bucks Raptors game, and I was you know I was thinking about how this player for people who are listening who aren't familiar named Kawhi Leonard who uh he's it's his first year on this one team and they're in the Eastern Conference Finals now and anyway how the rest of the team kind of like rally around him and they get really excited and I was thinking it's not like they have this lifelong friendship it's not like they've known each other for 10 years or anything like that and they've grown up as teammates this is a sort of transactional relationship but nevertheless you can still have these deep like man bonds and because we live in in a time period where people are you know, you know, like that. We know not all men suck, but still the patriarchy sucks. Fuck the patriarchy. And so I think that there's this interesting, there's interesting cultural tension to work through about what is masculinity, what is male friendships, uh, and then also not disregard the sort of beauty of the bonding through sports teams or through political organizations or whatever the fuck it is that is your thing that can happen between men. Like that, that it's not a bad thing that like men doing man shit and going fishing or, you know, uh, going to the movies or doing a movie podcast or whatever it is that is your thing that, that, that it's not bad. It's not necessarily the patriarchy, even if there can still be some bullshit attached to it. That's like, oh yeah, fucking guys being macho and trying to fight and doing the yo mama jokes and shit like that. Yeah, that might be stupid, but that doesn't, that doesn't corrupt the whole thing, you know? And I was, I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot about that lately about, uh, like how it is that that men in teams, um, and we kind of saw that also with the October Sky film, like men working in the mines together. That the community is still something that's important, and that we shouldn't just take the easy road just because there are some corrupt elements that um, that constitute a lot of these relationships or dynamics. You know. Well, here's the interesting thing, Austin, because um, I'm glad you brought up October Sky because I wanted to ask you a question. Do you find this a more satisfactory depiction of the working class than you found October Sky? Really interesting question. More satisfactory. I don't know. You know what it is? It's definitely more close to home for me because I didn't grow up in a union environment. 
And so I still think of the union as either being something foreign and idealized, like, oh, you know, the unions were the ones that fought for the eight-hour workday, the 40-hour work week, the ending of child labor, etc. Or I think of the union um, like, oh, there's these tensions in between like union leaders and then the actual union workers and if they get too much power then the union leaders don't so you know they don't they don't speak on behalf of the workers and so i can think of it in terms of corrupt terms but where i they get taken over by the mob you can get taken over by the mob yeah and and then they and then jimmy hoffa just disappears (laughs) but see even this like all of this is all fantastic in the literal sense it's all a fantasy it it was even though my father's a part of the carpenters union and i grew up in that environment it's still it wasn't really as close to home but what was closer to home was seeing uh like inner city families seeing uh minority communities in los angeles seeing dudes on the playground hustling being around it playing with people on the playground who were hustling and uh i never really got involved in it i played a couple of games for money but it was like nothing you know nothing like this stuff and um but i was this stuff is much more close to home for me so maybe maybe in that sense just that it 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 seems more something that i that i feel like i understand a little bit more you know because well, it's also it's it's quite literally close to home for you too because it's yeah. uh it's all just down the road uh to <laughs> yeah well i mean remember i was born in la but i grew up in orange county um but um, you know, my dad is South LA guy. My mom's a South LA girl. This all takes place in South LA. My mom uh, and dad went to high school like 15 minutes from the jungle, which is where uh, Wesley Snipes and his wife live, which is like Baldwin. God, it's Baldwin, not Baldwin Heights, Baldwin something. I can't remember what it's called, but it's like Baldwin, Baldwin Heights, Baldwin Park, something like that. Uh, they call it the jungle. And, um, but yeah, they, they lived, you know, 15 minutes away from there. And then I lived at one point, I lived about 10 minutes north of there because uh, it's like right next to Crenshaw. And I lived just right north of, of that area at one point. Well, there's, was... that, there's that point too where, where they're getting on the – where Rosie Perez like demands that they're going to go get the money back. <laughs> and he just goes, you can't, you can't go to Crenshaw – if you're white, you can't go to Crenshaw <laughs> after like a certain time. It's a form of reverse racism, sweetie, you just, you, but you just can't. Well, I think I think that's kind of one of the things that I really like about this movie is that I like that it feels like this very lived in world, like all the courts, they feel like real courts, all the people feel, totally. you know, pretty authentic, you know, it feels and I mean, it seems like it's like, for instance, like I love like the court with the Ghanaian flag and the Sudanese <laughs> yeah. flag, you know, yeah. it's just like it, yeah, it's just like those things where I look at them. I'm kind of like, I just want to go play on that court. It looks cool. Um, totally. And I think the the really interesting thing that I, I noticed while watching it this time is actually Woody Harrelson is pretty much the only major white character. Like mm. pretty much the entire cast is is black aside from a couple of people, like say like the Jeopardy contestant and like a cop with one line and stuff like that. But it's Yeah, there's these two these two white boy basketball players because, you know, they, there's this one big dude and he's got kind of a mullety looking haircut and they call him like a corn fed whatever, whatever. And he's a big dude that they play in a tournament at one point. But yeah, no, there's literally like four white people, like seven white people. Well, in the the, the gangster movie. guys are white as well. Yeah. So seven or eight in the entire movie, you know? <laughs> but it, and I mean, it's so it's, it really fascinates me too that this is kind of like written and directed by a white guy because it does feel like a very lived in kind of authentic thing. So apparently he used to play street ball. Now, I don't know what that means, like to what extent he played, 
But apparently he actually, in the L.A. area, played streetball. I found this really interesting article, and it's called, for people who might want to know, it's from Mental Floss, but it's 15 Elevated Facts About White Men Can't Jump. And, oh, interesting. Uh, I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't see that. Yeah, and so I'll, um, there are a couple of things. So um, apparently he wrote the script in like the first 37 pages in one day. And this is all because he was an L.A. streetball player himself. Apparently Denzel Washington was the original choice for Sydney. Apparently Keanu Reeves, Charlie Sheen, and David Duchovny were all considered for Billy. It's like I can't imagine anybody else in these parts. It's just because I it, – it's again, I've, I've watched this movie so many times and it's just like – it's just I can't imagine anybody else doing it. This one you're not going to believe. Rosie Perez beat out Holly Hunter and Rosanna Arquette for Gloria. I mean, I think, again, they made the right choice because the, totally. the thing is, too, is I also think it's that thing with Rosie Perez, especially at this point, because she has just that such that 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 really thick accent mm-hmm. that, again, she just kind of feels much more. She feels much more lived in as a character, whereas I feel like Holly Hunter would have just felt. I mean, I suppose the thing with Holly Hunter is obviously she's, she's got that kind of southern drawl in the same way Woody Harrelson does, so it would have kind of fit. But again, I think there's actually something really good about the fact that be, I think the fact that Woody Harrelson's with a non-white woman also helps the plot a lot because I feel like if he was also with a southern woman, it would start to like. Like there's there's an element to which like his kind of um, va- the the sort of the, the more racist things he says sound far more kind of like posturing because you're kind of like well this dude's clearly not that racist if he's like there's there's clearly a posturing element to this whereas I think if he had like a a, a white partner you'd kind of be like okay does this dude like actually like hate black people well it kind of gives him a little bit more of an authenticity being from like the New York New Jersey area too like if he were with Holly Hunter you know as as good of an actress as she is she still has a little bit of a sweetness about her i mean i've seen her in tougher roles but Rosie Perez maybe it's just because of the stereotype uh, of of being a latina woman whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but she can use that uh, with with this role for being a little bit tougher for being a little bit more and as a puerto rican woman puerto rican women live in new york because there are shitload of puerto ricans in new york so if they're coming from new york that makes a lot of sense rather than a girl with a southern I don't accent. think he's from, I don't think he's supposed to be from new york though no, but he does talk about how he played ball in New York and New Jersey and stuff like that. Oh, so okay. I kind of just put – maybe that was just my reading between the lines and I kind of thought oh, okay. oh, maybe that's where they met. And then well, you know, he's got my part because like, my, my thing is Woody Harrelson so him. radiates Texas to me that I yeah. always just think of his characters as from Texas. It's kind of oh, like yeah. – it's kind of like <laughs> how – this will sound like a random tangent, but it's how it always bothered me when I watched How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days where – Matthew McConaughey just sounds like a Texan, but for some mm. reason is a giant New York Knicks fan. And it's like, and then it's like, you're like, okay, I guess he moved to New York and became a Knicks fan. Okay, sure. But then they go to meet his family and his family all sound like they're from Texas. And like, so I'm just like, did this entire family from just, from Texas, just go, just move up to New York and decide they were huge Knicks fans. And it's, it's, Hamptons, it's a weird right? moment. They're in the Hamptons or some shit. So I'm going to say it's oil money. That's what it is. Maybe. Maybe. So check this. So apparently uh, Rosie Perez impressed everybody, casting department and everything, but the studio didn't like the idea of a Puerto Rican actress playing Woody Harrelson's girlfriend. So Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson backed her up and told the studio to back off, and then they ended up uh, giving her the role. Um, So check this out. Halle Berry and Angela Bassett auditioned for the role of Rhonda, which is 
Wesley Snipe, Sydney's wife. Um, And then check this out. The crew apparently needed protection while shooting in some of the L.A. neighborhoods. So here's a little thing right here. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, Before filming The Fruit of Islam, which is a group, they went to the neighborhoods to negotiate with various gangs to ensure that the cast and the crew were safe. And then this is a quote from Shelton. They would go into the neighborhoods ahead of us and navigate the gang turf wars and all of that so we would know exactly where we could shoot safely. And he says they were terrific. Um, well, I mean, because I've heard that quote with um, with a couple of movies because Training Day did a similar thing where they had to kind of parlay with the gangs so that um, they could shoot in certain areas. But it's, it's yeah. I think it's, you know, it's so worth it because, again, I just think like those those locations feel just so authentic. And I actually think like... For all of the the fact that you know you have the whole thing where you have a a guy with a you know who who goes during the game to go uh, sell his his gun so that he can um so that he can get money for the bet and then tries to like <laughs> tries to like chop them with like a razor blade for all of that it's still like the thing I like about it is that it still feels light you know is that the film never gets too bogged down in even though i think it's got some interesting angles on the the socioeconomic um uh strife of the areas it it still mm. actually still manages to be a fun movie and that's mm. a difficult balance to hit i mean one of the things i was really marveling at was how much this film manages to easily just dance through some really really massive potential holes that it could fall into because it is it is juggling a lot of chainsaws here you know it's you know it's it's dealing with race it's dealing with uh gender dynamics you know it's then dealing with poverty it's like it could so easily just fall on its face and i think it manages to you know sidestep all those plot holes those uh well you know not plot holes but holes you know pretty pretty well yeah, and I think I think part of it is because it it doesn't get bogged down and you might think this is surprising that I appreciate this in the film, but it doesn't get bogged down in the conceptual, but rather it just simply spends its time developing the relational. And so it's it's simply about Sydney, Billy, Gloria, Rhonda, and then the other people that they're involved in. However, all of those socioeconomic and racial and uh, gender concepts inform each of the characters, which mean that they're really well-developed characters. It means that the world building was well done. And then if you're going to make a typical, and I don't mean typical in the bad sense, but if you're going to make, let's say, a traditional story, a Hollywood film that has a three-act structure, this is the way you do it. Because you don't get you don't get lost in either the conceptual or the relational to the neglect of either but at the same time it's still very character focused and you still have a protagonist's arc and journey that you go along with and so there's still an empathy that is created and it's really well done in that well i think i think there's something very interesting too because i think at the same time it also manages to touch on some very interesting philosophical concepts in it um like I find the idea of when you know they're listening to Jimi Hendrix and <laughs> you know Wesley Snipes says you're listening but you're not hearing Jimmy and it's this whole thing this whole running thing through of of Woody Harrelson being like I can hear Jimmy and um and uh Wesley Snipes saying you know you can't hear Jimmy and it's like and there's the, the you know, and it, it also sort of feeds a little bit into the whole thing of, you know, what he says about you've got to listen to the woman. It's like this idea of of the importance of 
listening and understanding. And of course, I think the interesting thing is metaphorically, obviously what he's he's talking about is is the idea that, you know, you take on other people's experience simply through looking at it but not really understanding it. It's like you can you can try to you you it, it, and I, and I, I don't know. I, I think there's something kind of interesting about the film in general and the way it deals with race relations, this idea of that there's a there's a surface bond that can come, but how you have to work to understand beyond that. Yeah, and that maybe maybe there's even an unbridgeable gap, right? Mm, like even yeah. if he even if he listens to Rosie Perez, if he listens to Gloria, will he ever hear her? You know, because the thing that she's saying in the bed when she when you did your kind of meant your, your thing at the beginning when you were talking about the water, uh, you know, she's saying like, I don't want you to just get me the water because that just makes men feel like they're omnipotent and they can control us. But rather, I want you to sympathize with me and I want you to say that you understand me and that you, too, have felt this feeling that I have. What she's asking for is to bridge that gap, to hear her, not just not just listen to her, I guess. So the funny thing is, is even though Snipes is saying, you know, listen to her, what she wants is even something more. And then it's that next step that's even harder, that even, like, you got to start with listening, but you've got to move to hearing. And and then making that next step. Is it ever possible? Like, can you ever? Like, at the end, he obviously doesn't listen to her. He loses her. But he seems to be listening to Sydney. And they become friends, but the, it kind of leaves you in that limbo with thinking, well, but will they ever, will they ever be more than just, you know, kind of partners who can hustle? You kind of have a little bit of a hope, I think, but I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not left with the optimism that Billy somehow cleans his act up. I'm left thinking that they're going to fucking go play basketball because immediately what do they do? They start talking shit again and saying, let's go one-on-one -on -one right now. Come on. I just feel uh, uh, like uh, you know when he he gives the uh, he gives the singer guys like twenty bucks and then he's and then um, Sydney's like I'll pay I'll play you for twenty bucks right now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's never going to end, and that's why there is that weird tension because it's kind of happy, and you're like, oh, he's found a friend, and you know they've they've got each other, and but yeah, <laughs> Billy's a fuck up, man, <laughs> and he's probably always going to be a fuck up. Well, and I think that's the interesting thing, though, too, though, because I think there's this this interesting balance of the idea of of Billy is lacks a lot of self awareness in many ways, but the thing that I think is interesting is that while certainly it's a critique of, I think Billy in many ways is a is a critique of how, you know, white culture interacts with black culture in the sense of how it 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 takes enjoyment out of the things that it does, but doesn't ever seek to really try and understand it um i think at the same time there's an interesting idea that the film is also built on this conceit of the fact that all of these black players assume billy sucks because of the way he looks hmm. and so i think there's there's an interesting push and pull in this as well it's not just simply about saying um white people bad it's about kind of it's a, it's a, you know, it's like we said, it's about the, the sort of the gaps between the sort of the, the racial divide. And I think the thing that's interesting too is that this film essentially also throws the class element out the window. So it's sort of like, it's not interested in, because there's an interesting point early on too where he kind of says, oh, this is different from that country club basketball you play. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's an assumption that because 
Billy's white, that he's sort of grown up in some sort of more affluent um, background. Mm. And because especially L.A., you're going to assume that because of, you know, in a lot of the neighborhoods they're coming from, there's going to be a lot of assumptions, too, based around the fact that there's an awful lot of affluent white people around, you know, and a lot of these neighborhoods are all black. So it's a... It's an interesting idea that Billy himself, by being this kind of street hustler, is actually on the same level as these guys. So it becomes really purely about the racial divide, not just simply the socioeconomic divide. Yeah, man, it's interesting. So like I said, I grew up playing basketball, and I grew up playing in parks and playing street ball. But the majority of my youth in playing was in an area that is mostly white people in uh, in Orange County, right? And then even when I played organized ball, you know, we would have mixed race teams, but still the majority of our teams because of the area were more white than black. However, you know, we would go into areas when we would play um, the schools from Long Beach or the schools uh, like in Artesia and stuff like that where it's more minority populated. And then we would play teams that would be, you know, kind of more black. And then so the funny thing was, is like on my high school basketball team, uh, it was like, let's say there were 15 players. Uh, there are like 15 white or I'm sorry, like 13 white dudes and like two minorities or maybe like nine white dudes. And then the other five or four or whatever it is, I don't remember how many I said, would be like different minorities. You know, maybe like, like Latino, a couple black guys and then like a Hawaiian guy or something like that. Right. Um and uh, but then that that ratio was reversed when we would go to the L.A. counties and we would play them. And it was like, oh, they'd have like four or five white guys and then the rest would be minorities. Um, but then I also it's always an interesting experience. And then there is a difference in playing like that country club basketball. There's a difference between playing organized like high school basketball or NJB or like traveling team ball than playing street ball. And I remember the first time that I really encountered that difference. I was actually with my basketball team and we were traveling to Arizona for a tournament. And we ended up going to play a pickup game. And I remember at the park them saying similar stuff. It wasn't quite as aggressive, but there was this there was this sense that if you played organized – and it wasn't just our team. Like we were there with a bunch of these other traveling teams and these are like some of the top high school players on the West Coast that all went to go play these street ball players. And these kids that were these street ball players, they kind of viewed us like soft yuppie ballers that we would call fouls when we were barely touched and that we didn't have the kind of grit and aggression and skill that was really required to make it on the streets, so to speak. And it was like I was 15, 16 years old, and I remember it was the first time that I really encountered that, and I was like, huh. And like I guess I never really thought that like street ball was different rules, but they quickly taught me that it was different rules, man. And you get that a little bit where, you know, Sydney is like, you know, Michael Jordan came out here and was like, you should come play in the summer, the summer league or something like that. He's like, no, fuck that, man. I'm not even going to like stoop lower to that because it's not no, no, real. That's not what he said. That is not what he said. What What's he, he said was, and I said, no, shit would mess up my game. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It would mess up his game because it would be soft indoor basketball. That's not the real street ball. That's not authentic. That's not tough, gritty basketball. And so that's kind of something that was kind of interesting as well to kind of to consider in this, you know? See, here's here's another thing, because in a previous episode, you remarked about hating um, when people 
don't look look like they can't play basketball in movies. Yeah, I and, hate that. And you talked about an episode of Atlanta where it was you were really annoyed because the the actors clearly couldn't play basketball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, how did you feel about the basketball action in this film? Yeah, no, it's great. It's really great. So apparently. And I did not know this because I thought the dude had game, but apparently from that list of facts that I read that Wesley Snipes was extremely athletic but not a very good basketball player until they put him through some grueling basketball practice prior to filming. And then, of course, they made him look good, they said, through like just other stuff with choreography and editing and whatnot. But it's because he's a supreme athlete. He was – because, you know, I think he's like a former – he's like a karate champion or some shit like that. I read – is that um, is that Woody Harrelson was actually the better basketball player out of the two yeah, of them? Yeah, he's actually a good baller, Wesley Snipes. He was yeah. extremely athletic, but not a very good basketball player until he got to practice, and then they kind of got him better. But um, but if he is the weak link, then I'm you know he looks pretty good. I mean, some of the dribbling you can tell it's not yeah, perfectly there was a couple placed. Of dribbles that looked fingers. a little bit off. And yeah, remember... the ball bounces a little high, and it's on his palm rather than his fingertips, yeah. and they look kind of out of control. But, you know, other than that. There's a couple of points where I think people are traveling a bit, but then again, I also <laughs> kind of feel like that's street ball as people travel a lot. Yeah, you, you travel, you foul. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, yeah. But, no, the basketball is good, man. And I know, and I did some reading on some of the players. I, I can't remember who they are off the top of my head, but it's either former collegiate players, a couple guys that played a few years in the pro, some guys who had like longer pro careers. And then you've got the dude from above the rim, Dwayne Martin, who um, he didn't play for the Knicks, but I believe he maybe played like some uh, some exhibition games, like summer summer league. Like he was he was signed as a free agent or something like that, but never ended up making it. But he he's a baller too, so... You know, a lot of the guys actually know how to play, and you can tell. You know, the the scenes, the basketball scenes for two on two, they're shot really, really well. Bob Lanier, um, who was a Piston and Milwaukee Bucks legend and a Hall of Famer, was hired as the basketball coach for the film, and mm. he actually said that by the end of it, he thought that both Snipes and Harrelson could play Division three college ball. They were like of that skill level. Oh wow. Um, which I think is – it's really interesting because I think it's the sort of thing that people take for granted as well as the idea of – because people often talk about like people getting in like great shape or having to learn like fight skills or stuff like that. But I think like you know the idea that somebody has to really learn how to look authentic as a basketball player is the sort of thing that I think people take for granted sometimes in these, these sorts of things. Um, totally. Be totally. Because yeah. it's a lot about too like – it's a lot about movement and how you have to look authentic moving. And, you know, yeah. especially like it's like we said, like the, the the thing that the only thing that ever really draws me out is like like you said, there's a couple of times where Wesley Snipes kind of almost like palms the ball rather than has it on his finger, which just looks off. But it's otherwise like they. But I mean, again, you can tell the dude is like athletic as fuck. Like so it's like that thing of he, he just because he's so he moves so well, he can kind of um, get past that a lot. I mean, I'm sure he played all kinds of sports growing up. And so as long as they can teach him how to shoot a little bit, because his form looks really good. His shot looks really good. And his well, shot looks better too, like, than Woody he, Harrelson's. But, but you're right. He's like, he's a karate, you know, he's like, he's like mad into martial arts. Um, like he actually like choreographed a lot of the fight scenes in Blade. Mm. Like he's, you know, he, he's, he's an athletic dude. But the, the funny thing I was thinking, right, 
is that I was like, do white dudes just inherently look goofier while playing basketball? Because even, like, Woody Harrelson, like, I don't feel he ever looks... Like, Wesley Snipes looks cool during a lot of the times where they're playing basketball. I never feel like Woody Harrelson really looks cool playing basketball. Well, because that's because you'd rather look good first than win, than win and look bad, Kier. Well, I mean, again, it's interesting because it brought us back to the whole thing that we were talking about, about Hoosiers, about this idea that, you know, white white you know, culture around basketball is concerned with the fundamentals and how like, you know, black culture is concerned with like the flair. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting how much of an idea this is, but it's like, if I think about like, you know, the big sort of flair, like white players, you know, you've got, what was his name? Kevin Williamson played for the Kings, played for the Heats, but he was kind of like a dude who had like a lot of like crazy moves in his arsenal, but it's still like there's that. Oh, point white where chocolate. I just always... You're talking about white chocolate. White chocolate, yeah. Who... Um, no, I just always remember name? thinking he Jason... just looked still always. Jason, Jason, Jason Williams. Williams. Jason Williams, yeah. Yeah, Jason Williams, that's it. And I always just remember thinking he still just kind of looked like a goofy white boy. Have you ever seen um, The Professor? Do you know who he is? No. So if you just Google The Professor or go to YouTube and type in The Professor Basketball, he's a street baller. And he's known as like one of the most famous and one streetballer dudes and he's a white guy and he's just got crazy handles and um he's uh he's he's super flashy super flashy but i mean i get what you're saying and i feel like there is this sense in which and we talked about this again like you said with the hoosiers podcast white boys are like larry bird and then black guys are Showtime Magic Johnson. And the white guys are the Kevin McHales, Danny Ainges, Boston Celtics, dirty, blue collar. They dive on the ground for loose balls. You know, they just kind of – they're the coal miners of the NBA, of the basketball world. And then the black guys, the Magic Johnsons, even though Kareem, I don't know why he's considered Showtime. He's like crazy fundamental, like super zen spiritual, but whatever. He gets like lumped in with them. James Worthy, like they were flashy between the legs, no look passes. And they're kind of like, uh, I mean, if they're not the coal miners, they're the celebrities. They're the actors and the models and, you know, the the musicians of the basketball world. And it's a bullshit like bifurcation. But it, for some reason, really does have an, an impact on, on, I think, how we raise our kids playing basketball, but also how we interpret, like, basketball players and stuff like that. And then this film, I think, really kind of plays on that to, to good effect because you basically have Magic and you have Larry, you know? Like, you got the white guy that can shoot, and then you got the black guy who does the no-look passes, <laughs> you know? Is this is this a do you think it's an issue of like credibility that because we we deem, you know, black players as coming from some sort of more like authentic, like sort of, um, you know, again, like more like the street ball culture of what we see in this film, like because of that, we deem them as some more more valid. I mean, why do you think that is culturally that we we perceive it that way? You mean more valid? What do you mean more valid? More valid, I mean, I suppose not more valid, but more kind of authentic in the sense that they, their their skills are honed in a more kind of like low down sort of like dirty organic fashion rather than through sort of like lots of just like boring practice sessions. Uh, you know, that would be... Yeah, you went to the private school and you probably had the good coaches and you had the good sneakers and you had uh, the good diet and all that stuff. And if you're the black kid, you came up from the inner city and you 
you uh, you learned by watching, you know, the other black heroes or something like that. I mean, there is some really interesting cultural stuff. I mean, I think in another life, I would love to explore these themes. I could I could spend my entire career like looking at sports culture in a really in-depth philosophical sense. And I feel like there's a lot of lack for that. Like I think a lot of people think that sports are just simple entertainment, but they're not, man. They're a part of what it means to be a human. They have been when around. I've, I've always since... said. Yeah, go ahead. When I, when I've, when I've, a lot, oftentimes talking to women, um, one of the things I've always explained about why sports is significant to men a lot of time, obviously this, Sports are significant to some women, but I mean, I think largely culturally, we they, they it tends to be men in a in a larger fashion. But anyway, the point is, I always explain that in many ways it's a secret language among men. It's like I've always said that if you can talk about football, you can talk to a very large majority of <laughs> a, a very large percentage of the male population. So it's yeah. like so. I mean, and my mother would say that my father wasn't that into sports. But he thought I should be into sports. So it's almost like he tried to engineer me to be into sports <laughs> because he was like he knew that that's a way men interact with each other. And it's true. If I'm at a part, I've I've had experiences where I've been at like at a party or something where I didn't really know anybody. And then it's like it's like as a guy, if you see somebody who's wearing like a team shirt or something like that, you go and you go like, oh, so are you like a fan of such and such, or are you you follow? Do you follow football? And then they'll turn around and they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, who do you support? And then you could just have, like, a conversation. You could talk to somebody for, like, two hours about football and nothing else. And it's like this I've, – I've, and I've had the experience where, like, a former girlfriend be like, so, so – oh, so who's that guy you were talking to? I was like, I don't know. He, he likes Liverpool, though. And it's mm-hmm. like and it, it sounds like a sort of dumb stereotype. But it's true. It's like if you can talk to a guy about football, you don't really need to talk about anything else. And it's a big way that men often interact with each other. Yeah, it it is not an understatement to say that every foreign country that I have lived in, it has been a great boon to my social life when I meet other Americans out that we can bond over American sports. Just like they'll come up to me and they'll be like, hey, so do you do you follow football, American football? And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, dude. Or, or do you follow basketball? Or what about baseball? Or what about hockey? You know, they can just start talking about American sports because we're foreigners in this other country and the thing that even though I might not have a single thing in common with this human, but we're thrust into this social setting for whatever fucking reason, but we can talk about sports and we can talk all night and then we can be like, cool, man, well, let's hang out again and we'll exchange numbers and then we'll like talk and we'll be like, hey, do you want to go to a bar and watch a game? And like that can be it. I could have no connection other than just we like to watch basketball <laughs> and that could be it. <laughs> and it's actually been really beneficial to like have this universal language like you say you know or an american language in that instance but still even even making connections with people though like you who are a european football fan i can still talk about that or in australia they can talk about aussie rules football because i'm interested in just sport you know and so actually i think that's the interesting thing is i also learned that you can kind of bullshit your way around a sport like because even though i mean like the funny thing i think one of the reasons that i also like this film a lot is because the 90s was kind of the period where i paid attention to basketball Mm. so i kind of have a real thing about like 90s basketball culture um so like you know my old housemate really liked basketball 
But, like, I wasn't really following basketball that closely. But what I could still do is I could talk about, like, Shaq. Or I could talk about Michael Jordan. I could talk about the 90s Bulls. I could talk about the magic in the 90s. You know, all of these things that were kind of big culturally at that point. And so you could still kind of talk about basketball, even though you weren't really talking about what was going on at the moment. And I think Mm. that's the interesting thing is that it's not just necessarily about remembering a whole bunch of scores. It's about actually engaging with the culture of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. I mean, I no, go ahead. I mean, I, I think I think the other thing that I just wanted to bring up as well that I find kind of interesting is that I find Ron Shelton as a director kind of strangely kind of fascinating as well, because he's this guy who essentially made a career out of being like a sports movie auteur because he did have like other films he made, but like out of his movies, the vast majority of them are sports movies. Mm. You know, so he, he started off with like bull Durham and then he, he made a film called blaze, which isn't a, a sports movie, but then he did white man can't jump. He did Cobb, a, a film about Ty Cobb, tin cup, a golf movie, play it to the bone, a boxing movie. Mm. And then his, his career kind of tanked after he made Hollywood homicide um, like he made two cop films back to back. He made Dark Blue and he made Hollywood Homicide. But it's that weird thing of he just went on this run of just making sports movies. And it's interesting because I think of the sports movie as a subgenre that people don't talk about that much, like as an actual genre. But it's interesting to see someone who kind of ended up making a career out of it. I think it's um, hard to take them seriously. Unless it's a prestige piece, like something like Hoosiers that's about this town and this town has fallen apart and they only have one thing that means anything to them and it's their basketball team. And then they've got an alcoholic guy, you know, and then there's this coach that's abusive and, you know, it's got to be like really, really almost melodramatic. And then – because I'm trying to think, like what are other prestigious sports films? You could – is Any Given Sunday a prestigious sports film? I wouldn't say it's – I mean I'd say it's it's going – it's trying. I mean (laughs) I think – I think like – I think the funny thing is I think – Well, I think stuff's kind of changed recently and now you could sort of look at certain – I think certain movies that wouldn't have done well in terms of prestige in say the 80s have now become like say something like creed wouldn't used to have been considered a prestige film though i guess rocky obviously won an oscar for best film boxing films seem to be different though boxing yeah films the fighter are all prestige films the fighter right? did well and what about I mean, that I one with rest- miles teller like even that one I, I know it didn't get the best rate uh, reviews and stuff like that it may be much box office success but even still that's like a prestige film is moneyball a prestige film yeah, well, Moneyball, you know, Brad Pitt got nominated for uh, Best Actor. There were It got nominated for a couple other Oscars, I think. Got nominated that's for a screenplay. Because that's more about, like, it's more about, like, the science behind what changed baseball. It's about, it's got this bigger theme to it. But, like, just a sports film. I mean, you've got a Million Above Dollar the Rim. Baby got uh, one Best Picture. Yeah, again, boxing film. Yeah. Uh, Warrior, I mean, it's, it's which is a mixed martial arts film. Yeah, <laughs> you know, what's it's interesting because you know I'm just I just googled sports movie out of curiosity. What, to Miracle see what would come is up. Miracle a prestige film? 
I don't. Well, I mean, again, I, I when I say when I think of prestige, like part of me tries to kind of think of it as if if I think of prestige, I generally think of something that's going for awards contention. And the funny thing is that when I look at these, the list of these films, the ones that do well tend to be in that area. Again, tend to be boxing movies. Um, like there's not a lot of like like football or basketball movies that get kind of awards consideration. And it's or like, so gotta, I, you know, and I, they've got to be about like the racial or there was that film where it's Josh Lucas is the basketball coach and they're like an all black team. What was Glory that? Glory Road. Yeah. Like, like that kind of thing. But again, it's all about the racial element, but it, you can't, is it, can you yeah, make but Glory a Road didn't get any kind of like awards contention? I mean, it wasn't even that well reviewed. No, no. But I mean, you know, it's trying to be something like a prestige piece. Like, can you make a basketball film or a baseball film or a football film and be taken seriously? I feel like it's really hard. Field of Dreams got nominated for, for mm. Best Picture. But again, um, that's not really a baseball film first, right? Yeah, no, I get what you mean. And it's interesting because it's it's interesting how much I feel like there's the kind of subgenre within the genre of what I think of like the Disney sports movie, right? Like, right, right. The just ultimate feel good kind of movie. So, so Miracle is something I would put in that. You know, Invincible with Mark Wahlberg. Um, you know, Remember the Titans, uh, The Rookie. These films that are really just aspirational films. And so, yeah. and I think that's the interesting thing is that because we think of the sports movie as having this very set. Um, sort of structure because we know there's going to be at the point where they have the big game at the end where, you know, <laughs> and it, it's, but that's the interesting thing is it's more malleable than people think. And I think one of the things that's interesting is if you look at, say, something like this film, it essentially almost kind of punctures that by having the big game, but by actually going and playing the big game, he actually loses, mm. you know. Because sometimes he, when he, you win, you lose. And Ron Shelton's kind of interesting because in many ways, I think he actually manages to subvert a whole bunch of these. Because have you, have you ever seen the movie Tin Cup? I really like Tin Cup. Yeah. Well, of course, the whole ending of Tin Cup is essentially he bullheadedly just keeps trying to make that shot. And the victory for him is making the shot, not actually winning the U.S. Open. And so he basically mm. tanks the U.S. Open in order to like in order to win a kind of personal victory, which oh is not God, how that, the sports movie should really go. And there's something remind, kind that, again. That scene is so harsh, man. Oh, you just you made me so uncomfortable. I forgot about that because you just remember him sticking his hand out and his caddy's like, come on, man. And he's like. Give me a ball. <laughs> yeah. oh, his his caddy played by Cheech Marin. Oh man, that is such a brutal, brutal sequence. Oh. And again, you think of like Bull Durham, and Bull Durham is ultimately about a washed up guy. It's not about a guy who's gonna get some great victory and like go up to the majors and be like it's about a guy who's basically playing out the end of his career and it's about his career finishing. Mm. You know? It's a it's interesting to me how within this subgenre he does some some interesting kind of things. I've actually never seen Cobb, but I also I weirdly like Play It to the Bone uh, as well, which is a film that everybody else shit on, but I actually think it's kind of good. I think Isn't that? It's Woody Harrelson and Antonio Banderas. It's where they're these two boxers who basically um basically they're these sort of two like no hope guys who because there's a problem with um, one of the tune-up matches in this big title fight in Vegas, 
um, they basically get called because they're within 24 hours reach and they can just sort of show up and they put it on and they kind of see this as like their big shot. And then the whole film really revolves around them driving to Vegas together and they're kind of it, it's got a kind of white man can't jump element to it in the sense that it's about two guys who are friends but essentially spend all their time kind of trash talking each other. And um, then it's about like. You know, again, kind of the idea with their final bout is not that these two dudes are going to end up sort of like with great careers off of this. It becomes about a, a sort of uh, a, a, it comes about a sort of personal victory between the two of them, mm. you know, and I think I think it's a it's an interesting film that I again, I think kind of got weirdly over shit on. But I, I'd say the the biggest regret about it is I kind of wish it a bit of reteaming of. Uh, Woody Harrelson and um, Wesley Snipes, mm. but uh, I mean, Antonio Banderas isn't bad in it. But it's uh, you know you, you feel like it kind of would have been more fun as a as a white as a pseudo sequel to White Men Can't Jump. Yeah, and their chemistry's great, man. I mean, that's the one thing too is you know acting for me is so important, and everybody in this film is good from the like bit part basketball player dudes that only have one scene to the opponents who are only there for even like part of a scene. To the guys that are, um, they kind of have, uh, like, uh, what's his name? Kadeem Hardison. Like, he's great in this. Like, all the little supporting roles. Everybody is good from top to bottom. And, um, yeah, that, that to me always is important. So. The one other thing, too, I'll say is that not only that, but he also wrote two basketball films. So, not two basketball, two, two sports movies. One of them is a basketball film. But he wrote uh, this film called The Great White Hype. Um, which is uh, all about them trying to trump up this sort of white boxer as this way of kind of creating a media circus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, and then he also wrote Blue Chips. I really liked Blue Chips when I was a kid. I haven't seen it in forever, but after watching this, it made me want to go down like just a rabbit hole of basketball movies. Well, that was the interesting thing is I essentially picked this movie as my stand in for basketball movies because I just wanted to watch, you know, the NBA players just got me really in the mood to do a basketball movie. And, you know, I was I was really struggling between this and he got game. But of course, we did a Spike Lee film fairly recently and then um, also uh, Love and Basketball. Uh, but I'd also just recently rewatched Love and Basketball, so I wanted to pick something I hadn't recently rewatched. So it's like it's there's a lot of like really interesting basketball movies out there. Did and you again, ever watch Hoop Love Dreams? and Basketball is a really interesting one because again, it kind of completely subverts the genre in 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 a lot of ways. I mean, there's no big game; it's really about an emotional journey. And I think there's so I think I think there's so much more depth to sports movies than people often give it credit for. They tend to look at a very small cross section of, of of sports movies. Yeah, and I think it's because like you. Said, said it's athletes are they're aspirational and i think it's because athletes are viewed as these like one in a million types and so all we can ever glean from them is that like that like working hard and overcoming your challenge and and achieving the summit of whatever it is that we're endeavoring and that's where we can identify with them but i don't think that's the case and i think that's why white men can't jump is so interesting because that's not what it's about it's not about winning it's about the bond it's about the friendship it's about the community it's about the other things that are surrounding them when they're on the court haunting them like a specter but it's not just about them going and winning the final tournament. Like, I almost don't even give a shit about the last game when they play the Duke, whatever, and the whatever, whatever. But the reason is because 
by him making the choice to go play that game, he's chosen not to be with Gloria, and he's chosen this friendship with Sydney. He's chosen his addiction to gambling and to hustling and to sport and to basketball and to like male bonding over this potential relationship with this woman who wants to try to take care of him because he's got a fatal flaw that he doesn't really ever overcome. So it's a completely different way of framing what sport is and what sport does. It's in a way, it's kind of almost unhealthy, but maybe that's the only thing that saves him from falling off the cliff and committing suicide or something. Like, so in a sense, maybe there's like a salvation that you find in basketball as well. You know? What I've always said too that I think sport is kind of like a soap opera for men. It's like you get caught in the drama, the characters on a week by week basis. You're kind of like, oh, he's playing this this team that he's that you know he played uh, you know last year and they completely railroaded him so is he going to be able to like come back this season you know you got your your matchups your beefs all of these things that really feel kind of like inherently like there's some kind of like uh cheap drama so i think if when you're tackling a sports movie like the thing that you have to remember is that what the sport represents is essentially a heightened version of the personal drama. So what mm. you need to do is you need to lay the groundwork to make sure that drama feels potent. So I think Warriors a perfect example because on paper Warrior sounds like a really fucking stupid movie, but it does such a great job of setting up and really establishing the personal dramas and dilemmas of those characters that by the time you actually end up in the cage with them fighting, it feels so intense because you're yeah. so invested in them on a human level that you care about what this match represents to them personally. You know, And I think that's the big key thing. Is that The interesting thing, too, is that I think, to me, the most tense point in White Man Can't Jump is that moment where he's trying to win the bet about whether he can dunk or not. Because oh, yeah. you know <laughs> both of them, you know on in both cases, if they lose all the money, they are personally fucked in their relationships. Yeah. And there's something so compelling about that because you're sitting there through sort of like clasped hands. You just want Sydney to go, you know, let's just call off the bet. And for or or for Woody Harrelson to say, you know what, fuck it, you're right. You just want somebody to just step in and be the sensible human being there. But I just remember I couldn't I, I had to like first time I watched this movie, I had to watch that like through my hands because I just couldn't. You're essentially watching someone self-destruct. And the point is not whether he can dunk. The point is not I'm excited to see whether he can dunk. The point is I'm so concerned to see if he completely fucks his life up. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting because that theme gets repeated like you just mentioned earlier with that tin cup scene. Shelton, he understands that point of tension that can be told through sport because it's not about the sport per se, it's about that instance of the sport illuminating a weakness within the character. And, and he, yeah, and that's, that's, that's good storytelling, you know, and you don't get a lot of that in sports films. No, and I, think, films I think that's general. it. I think people, people, uh, people rely too much on, on the cheap drama of sports without really sort of trying to dig into the, to, to the human element of it. And I think that's, I think there's, I mean, I think there's a kind of stock element to some of Ron Shelton's films. Like there's this kind of thing of like the main character is usually some kind of scuzzy, slightly over the hill fuck up. And mm -hmm. he usually ends up with some sort of sassy woman who um <laughs> sort of gives him a lot of shit and yeah. who but ultimately kind of is uh 
I mean, actually, it's it kind of varies in terms of where the relationship goes, but it, it, there 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 is a kind of stock type to his movies, but mm. it's still just very very entertaining but i've you know i've i've been talking up ron shelton for years as this kind of fascinating auteur that people don't give enough credit to but uh and then he went and did me dirty by making a terrible old folks movie like about two years ago where it's like morgan freeman and uh, a bunch of other over the hill actors and it's like i can't I think it's like a, a heist or something in like a retirement home or something awful where he was clearly just a director for hire and but he hadn't made anything in like 10 years because basically uh hollywood homicide seemed to just completely tank his career um mm. and i was just i was so disappointed because i was like i've been rooting for you for years ron shelton what did you do to me you know what the last thing i'll say speaking of ron shelton that is almost in a way it's a it's a backhanded compliment but it is maybe one of the highest forms of praise you might be able to bestow upon a director i mentioned that we were covering white men can't jump to a couple of different friends who are themselves cinephiles or at least very tuned into the world of cinema history and they know directors and they know film and they pay attention right you know what both of them said to me first thing they said oh that's a john singleton no spike lee and i was like no ron shelton and they were like oh shit really and they were like no and i said yeah the fact that people think that the depth of like racial engagement in this film is because it's a spike lee film or a john singleton film says a lot about how he handles the subject matter, you know? What, and I think that's the thing is I think it feels, as we said, it's the authenticity of it that I think is yeah. one of the things that really means this film manages to sidestep a lot of issues. And I, I kind of imagine if this film came out now, it would probably still get a lot of shit for being written and directed by a white guy. But, I mean, you know, a former guest, um, uh, Doug, um, has always said, you know, it's like he, he said this in reference to the color purple, but I'm sure he would he would agree that in this case it's it's apt as well. Is it's only a problem if you fuck it up, and you know, <laughs> and that's the thing is he doesn't fuck it up at all. Yeah, agreed. You got that big Z in your fro, man. What are you, the Black Zorro? What are you doing? I'm doing two things. What? I'm making them mad. Most guys don't play good when they're mad. Look, you know you're embarrassing me. That's what you're doing. Yeah, well, that's the other thing I'm doing. I only have four words for you. White men can jump. Yeah, yeah, yeah! So, you won't let me watch, like, a Bellatar film that's seven hours long. So... I figured I'm going to do another long film, but it's going to be by a director that you can't say no to and that you can't get mad at me for. And it's going to take probably two viewings to watch this film, but you're going to enjoy it, motherfucker, because we're going to have a great conversation as we watch Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh this is actually this is possibly a good excuse for me to finally get Alex to watch Lawrence of Arabia. Um, but, but wow, that is, a, is an epic, epic film. It's four hours, and so I know that, you know, that's a long time. But if we do it mm -hmm. in two, two settings, that's not that big of a deal. And um, I might end up just watching well, it in one, actually, because... Watch it, watch it, you watch it like a miniseries. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So... Um, but I haven't seen it since I was a child. Oh, like, really? I've seen it, I think the last time, maybe university was the last time I watched it. Because um, I watched it with my housemate. Um, I've seen it quite a few times. My dad was 
in love with Lawrence of Arabia. And like, actually, I we had to do a thing on famous people, like where we dressed up as a famous person and did a, a sort of a oral report about them. And, and I actually T. E. did uh, T.E. Lawrence as my person. I did Clark Gable. And I and I we weren't allowed to do actors. Um, oh. But um but or, or sports people. Those were the two things that were banned. Um but uh, I had uh I had um the Lawrence of Arabia theme going in the background oh, that's while amazing. I while I spoke. Because it's oh, just it's like well then you better come with some facts next week brother uh, and the, and the thing the thing that my uh, the, the thing my dad used to always quote was uh you know the trick is in not minding that it hurts mm. is also good. Lawrence Arabia might have the greatest just cut ever where he blows out the match and just like cut to the desert you know it's mm. possibly one of the greatest transitions of all time yeah I'm excited man um, I'm just disappointed that I, I only have like a tiny screen to watch it on. I might try to find, like, I might try to watch it on my downstairs TV or something like that mm. because I need a bigger screen just cause that oh, yeah. fucking wide screen is amazing, you know, or I'll just bring my laptop really, really, really close to my face. I've, <laughs> I've never gone to watch it in a cinema, which is like, especially cause I think because it's such a long movie, I feel like it's one of those films that being able to just kind of sit in it. You know, on a big cinema would be like the way to do it because you get to experience like the the uh, you know um, what do you call it the overture and mm. kind of like you get to just have have the whole kind of like uh, yeah no I'm I mean I'm 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 very much up for talking about Lawrence of Arabia. Sweet, looking forward to it, man. I, you you had me worried when you started talking about Bellatar. I was like, oh, fuck, <laughs> what's, he, what's, he, what's he doing to me? Uh, I was like, I give you white man can't jump, and you're gonna give me something fucking horrible. Um, <laughs> But um, but anyway, uh, so um, if you want to hear any of our backlog of episodes, go to idigthismovie.com. Um, you can follow me on at uh, – you can you can check out my work at kiersiewit.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Breaking Point Flicks. Austin? Yeah, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, or on Insta, A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. All right. We will see you next week for Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs>